You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 434 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. As you guys will recall, by the time we reached the end of the last show, the Federals had successfully stormed Missionary Ridge and shattered the Confederate lines outside Chattanooga on November 25th, 1863. Amidst the smoke and chaos atop the ridge, Braxton Bragg did his best, riding one way and the other, begging the rebel troops to rally, shouting, I am here. Stop. Don't disgrace yourselves. But it was no use. The men were having none of it. In this fight, they had been laboring under a number of disadvantages. There was the confusion about withdrawing the troops manning the rifle pits at the foot of the ridge and the flawed positioning of the works at the crest. But the final disadvantage under which the soldiers of the Army of Tennessee suffered was their own abysmal morale. A long string of failures and perceived failures, bickering and backstabbing among the generals, and too many days on short rations, had so sapped their confidence in Bragg that even his appearance in their midst at this moment of crisis wasn't enough to stop them from running. According to some accounts, the troops sometimes responded to Bragg's efforts with open ridicule. For example, when Bragg rushed into a collapsing formation, shouting, Here's your commander! One of his men, before turning to flee down the back slope of the ridge, answered with the stock punchline of Civil War soldiers, Here's your mule. To be sure, not every Confederate soldier fled as fast as his feet could carry him. For instance, around the fallen colors of the 24th Tennessee lay the bodies of five members of the regiment's color guard who defended the flag to the last. And along the crest of the ridge, the rebel gun crews were especially conspicuous in standing by their pieces often until all hope of escape was gone and they fell or were captured when their positions were overrun. But as the seemingly unstoppable Yankee charge reached the top of Missionary Ridge and the Confederate position collapsed, most rebel soldiers were intent only on escaping down the back or eastern slopes of the ridge. 
Bragg later admitted, quote, It was a panic which I never before witnessed. The sun had set while the men of the Army of the Cumberland were charging up the slopes of Missionary Ridge, and the subsequent Confederate debacle had played out in the dying light of this late November day. The onset of night, coupled with federal exhaustion and disorganization, finally set a limit to the rebel disaster. The fleeing Confederates abandoned dozens of artillery pieces, most of them only recently rushed into position on the crest of the ridge. Flags and hundreds of prisoners were captured. It might have been worse for the Confederates except for three things. First, the growing darkness made it too late to organize a real federal pursuit. Second, the rebels were familiar with the roads and terrain on Missionary Ridge's eastern face. But to the Yankees, that ground was unknown. This knowledge allowed the Confederates to make their escape, while the Federals were hesitant to venture out into unknown ground in the growing darkness. Finally, their charge up the slopes under fire had exhausted and badly disorganized the Federals. Sheridan managed to throw together a limited pursuit by a couple of brigades who chased a few rebels down the back side of the ridge, but no one pushed far. While the center of the Confederate line had completely disintegrated, Tunnel Hill, at the northern end of Missionary Ridge, was still firmly held by the rebels. As you guys will recall, it was there that earlier in the day, Claiborne's Confederates had stopped Sherman's Federals in their tracks. Now, William Hardee, the senior Confederate commander left on the field, could hardly believe the extent of the disaster that had unfolded south of Tunnel Hill. Remember the night before, at a meeting at Bragg's headquarters, Hardee had urged Bragg to withdraw, but his advice had been ignored. Hardee had a horse shot from under him as he scrambled to stop the unraveling of the Confederate line before it reached the far northern end of Missionary Ridge. He used two of Cheatham's brigades to essentially refuse the line, that is, he formed them at right angles along the ridge to stop the Yankee troops who were surging northward. Those Yankees, mostly from Baird's division, broke through that Confederate blocking position. But by that time, Hardee, using two more brigades, had a second line of defense in place across the top of the ridge, standing in the path of the charging Federal soldiers. However, in the growing darkness, Absalom Baird decided not to press his luck, and he halted his advance, so the Federals never really tested that second rebel line. Once the fighting ended, Hardee managed to successfully withdraw Claiborne's and Cheatham's troops from their positions there at the north end of Missionary Ridge. In the darkness, the rebels used the shallow Ford Bridge on Chickamauga Creek to make their escape. By 9 p.m., Claiborne reported that everyone was across and the bridge was burned. So, there at the northern end of Missionary Ridge, the Confederates had managed to hold on and execute a successful withdrawal after dark. But to the south, 
at the other end of the rebel position, things hadn't gone quite so well, because there, on the Confederate left, Hooker's Federals had managed to finally reach Rossville Gap and proceeded to roll up the rebel position from that direction. As y'all will recall, Hooker's column to the south had been delayed for several hours by the need to build a bridge across Chattanooga Creek. But once that was done, and they finally reached Rossville Gap, Hooker's Federals, pressing north from the Gap, had linked up with George Thomas's victorious troops along the crest of the ridge around nightfall. That evening, when Ulysses S. Grant made his way from Orchard Knob to the top of Missionary Ridge to survey the scene there for himself, he could take satisfaction in knowing that, although it hadn't happened quite as he'd planned, by smashing the Confederate position on Missionary Ridge, the Federals had won a great victory and once and for all ended the frustrating deadlock at Chattanooga. After dark on the night of the 25th, at about 9 p.m., after Braxton Bragg had ascertained that all the Confederates who might escape the disaster on Missionary Ridge had reached safety, he ordered all the bridges across Chickamauga Creek burned. At 2 a.m. on the morning of the 26th, the Army of Tennessee began a retreat toward Dalton, Georgia, about 25 miles to the southeast. At Dalton, Bragg would have a secure rail connection to Atlanta in the form of the Western and Atlantic Railroad, and he would also be able to make use of the imposing terrain of Rocky Face Ridge, where the Army of Tennessee could hopefully rally and make a stand. For his part, Ulysses S. Grant certainly intended to mount a vigorous pursuit of the defeated rebel army, but he also had to think about Knoxville. As we mentioned previously, Abraham Lincoln and General-in-Chief Henry Halleck from Washington never wasted a chance to urge Grant to send aid to the beleaguered Ambrose Burnside. And so now, Grant ordered William Tecumseh Sherman and George Thomas to pursue Bragg. Sherman with his whole command, Thomas with Hooker's combined command, plus Palmer's 14th Corps. Meanwhile, Gordon Granger's Fourth Corps would go help Burnside. To bulk up the Knoxville expedition, Oliver Otis Howard's Eleventh Corps joined it, meaning Granger would have about 20,000 men, a force Grant considered more than sufficient when combined with Burnside's command to deal with Longstreet's Confederates. While Grant issued orders for the next stage of operations, on the Confederate side on the morning of November 26th, large quantities of supplies that had been brought up the Western and Atlantic and painstakingly accumulated at Chickamauga Station, just a couple of miles east of Missionary Ridge, now had to be abandoned and burned. The Kentuckians of the Orphan Brigade drew that unpleasant duty. Rebel soldiers who had been on short rations for two months as they manned the lines outside Chattanooga now watched unhappily as thousands of rations went up in smoke. At 11 a.m., as the first Yankee troops approached the depot, the Kentuckians withdrew, leaving the job unfinished. 
The Federals belonged to Brigadier General Jefferson C. Davis's command, and they immediately set about extinguishing the flames and confiscating the remaining supplies for their own use. They had, after all, been on even shorter rations than the Confederates for the past two months. On their retreat away from Chattanooga toward Dalton, the Confederate Army's intermediate destination was the railroad town of Ringgold, about a dozen miles to the southeast and site of another gap through another set of ridges. First, though, the rebels needed to move south to the village of Graysville, Georgia, where the main road crossed Chickamauga Creek before making its way to Ringgold. However, with Rossville Gap in the hands of Hooker's Federals, the Confederates feared the Yankees, following the same road, might reach Graysville first. And, in fact, Hooker fully intended to get there first. His fighting blood was up after back-to-back victories at Lookout Mountain and Rossville, and now he pressed ahead, anxious to reach Graysville ahead of the rebels. However, with his troubles bridging Chattanooga Creek the day before still fresh in his mind, Hooker now asked that a small pontoon bridge be sent to him. By midday, though, that equipment still hadn't reached him when the head of his column reached the site of a burned bridge over the west fork of Chickamauga Creek. Much to Hooker's frustration, it took several hours to cobble together even a rough span to cross infantry to the far side. The pontoons didn't arrive until 10 o'clock that night. By then, virtually all the retreating Confederates had safely reached the vicinity of Ringgold. On the morning of November 26th, the day after the Confederate disaster on Missionary Ridge, Braxton Bragg established his headquarters at Catoosa Station, two miles south of Ringgold. From there, Bragg sent Longstreet word of the Army's retreat from Chattanooga. Bragg knew the Yankees would probably waste little time in sending a substantial number of troops to aid Burnside at Knoxville, so he urged Old Pete, quote, to fall back upon Dalton if possible, end quote. But if that was, quote, impracticable, you will have to fall back toward Virginia. Toward the end of the day, Bragg laid out his plans for the 27th. While the army continued its retreat to Dalton, a rear guard would remain behind at Ringgold. That task was given to Patrick Claiborne and his division. Claiborne's stalwart defense of Tunnel Hill stood as the single redeeming aspect of the Confederate defense of Missionary Ridge on the 25th, which was otherwise a day of unmitigated disaster for the rebels. On the 26th, Claiborne's men had performed rear guard duties and camped just short of Ringgold. That afternoon, Claiborne sent Captain Irving Buck to Bragg's headquarters for additional instructions. There, an unusually emotional Bragg clutched Buck's right hand in both of his own and instructed the captain to, quote, tell General Claiborne to hold his position at all hazards and keep back the enemy until the artillery and transportation of the army is secure, the salvation of which depends upon him. 
Well, Buck was more than a little shocked at this display and said he thought Bragg, quote, exhibited more excitement than I supposed possible for him. He had evidently not rested during the previous night, end quote. Well, since Claiborne's division numbered just over 4,150 men, and since at least one federal corps, and perhaps two, were approaching Ringgold for a fight in the morning, Bragg's instructions to hold the place at all hazards was a tall order. But if anyone could pull it off successfully and cover the army's retreat, it was Patrick Claiborne. As he had shown at Tunnel Hill, the Irish-born rebel was one of the Confederacy's best division commanders. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The town of Ringgold sat just west of the gap of the same name, through which ran the tracks of the Western and Atlantic Railroad, as well as the waters of Chickamauga Creek. Taylor's Ridge ran off to the south, while White Oak Mountain sat to the north of the gap. The ground offered an excellent opportunity for Claiborne to mount a powerful defense. On steeply sloped Taylor's Ridge on his left, Claiborne placed only two regiments, the 16th Alabama and the combined 6th-7th Arkansas, he placed the rest of Colonel Daniel Govin's Arkansas Brigade in the gap itself, supporting a section of two guns from an Alabama battery. On his right, on White Oak Mountain, Claiborne placed Colonel Hiram Granbury's Brigade of Texans, with the 7th Texas anchoring that flank at the crest of the mountain. In reserve, just east of the gap, were the two brigades of Brigadier Generals Lucius Polk and Mark Lowry. Hooker's Federals camped the night of the 26th a couple of miles short of Ringgold Gap. On the morning of the 27th, Fighting Joe tapped Brigadier General Peter Osterhaus's division to lead the pursuit. Setting out at 6 a.m., Osterhaus's column marched without artillery, which was still far behind due to the bridging problems. Brushing aside a few rebel cavalry pickets, Osterhaus entered Ringgold around 7 a.m. He rode to the railroad depot, which was a sturdy stone structure at the foot of White Oak Mountain, a few hundred yards from the gap. 
From the rail platform, Osterhaus saw the tail end of a Confederate wagon train in the gap, along with what appeared to be limbered rebel artillery pieces, seemingly protected by only, in Osterhaus's words, a feeble line of skirmishers. Osterhaus failed to to detect the Confederate infantry arrayed on the heights or the rebel cannon which were deployed and ready for action. He obviously saw only what he wanted to see, that is, signs of a thoroughly whipped foe. Most of Osterhaus's men had yet to arrive at Ringgold when Hooker showed up and was told by Osterhaus that he was certain he could catch and capture the tail end of the enemy wagon train with little effort. Well, Hooker told him to, quote unquote, attack immediately. Hooker said that if necessary, other troops as they arrived would be sent on a flanking move up White Oak Mountain. The three Missouri regiments of Charles Wood's brigade headed right for the gap, preceded by a heavy line of skirmishers. Meanwhile, Woods detailed his other two regiments to protect his flanks, tasking the 13th Illinois with watching his right while he sent the 76th Ohio to climb the slopes of White Oak Mountain and screen his left. Almost immediately, Woods ran into trouble. Granberry's Texans repulsed the Missourians, sending them scrambling in considerable disarray back to the cover of the railroad embankment. The 13th Illinois suffered severely when they ran into the two guns from the Alabama battery covering the gap. The rebel infantry also poured in their fire, and when both the 13th Illinois' commanding officer and second-in-command were killed, a captain took charge of the regiment. With Woods stalled, Osterhaus turned to his next formation, a brigade of Iowans commanded by James Williamson. Osterhaus ordered the Iowans to scale White Oak in support of the 76th Ohio, which was still working its way up the slopes of the mountain. Williamson's men set to it, but ended up widely dispersed. Only the 4th Iowa scaled White Oak close enough to remain within supporting distance of the 76th Ohio. Unfortunately for the Federals, though, this wouldn't be a repeat of their spectacular charge up Missionary Ridge. Because on the Confederate side, Claiborne dispatched some regiments from his reserve and then sent virtually the entire brigades of both Lowry and Polk. The rebels scrambled up the east face of the heights while the Yankees toiled up the other side. On the Confederate side, Brigade Commander Lucius Polk personally led the first of his regiments up the slopes. The men of the 1st Arkansas reached the crest and discovered, in Polk's words, that the Yankees were also, quote, within 20 steps of the top. A furious firefight ensued, which cost the Ohioans 40% of their 200 men, including eight members of the regimental color guard. The Federals were pinned down just short of the summit. The arrival of the 4th Iowa on the scene was offset by the appearance of the combined 32nd, 45th Mississippi, and then more rebels from both Lowry's and Polk's brigades. The Confederates suffered much lighter losses here, since they won the race to the crest, 
For example, the Mississippians reported only one man killed and 17 wounded. With Osterhaus's assault having broken down, Hooker sent in John Geary's division, though again the federal attacks were uncoordinated and launched piecemeal. David Ireland's brigade of New Yorkers rushed directly into the gap, replacing the battered 13th Illinois. George Cobham's small brigade of three Pennsylvania regiments squared off against the Texans on the south end of White Oak Mountain. And William Creighton, hoping to find the rebel flank, led his brigade of Ohioans and Pennsylvanians up the slopes even farther north of where the 76th Ohio and 4th Iowa were still battling the enemy. However, intense fire from Polk's and Lowry's Confederates up on the crest stopped Creighton's advance short of the top, and smart maneuvering by the men of the 2nd Tennessee and also the 16th Alabama allowed them to savage Creighton's flanks. David Ireland's New Yorkers fared no better as they plunged directly into the gap. The 149th New York, leading the brigade's advance, was hit by withering musket and artillery fire and broke and fled to the cover of the nearby Job Farm, where they remained pinned down for the next two hours. Since the Confederates were clearly present in force, Hooker abandoned any idea of a quick victory at Ringgold Gap and decided to wait for the Federal artillery to come up. When the guns did arrive shortly after noon, Hooker ordered them to shell the Confederate positions, but the artillery fire appeared to have little effect on the enemy. Not long afterward, Ulysses S. Grant arrived on the scene and told Hooker to break off the action. Patrick Claiborne and the men of his division had performed exceedingly well in the rear guard action at Ringgold Gap, holding off a much larger force of Federals by a combination of skillful use of the terrain and well-timed deployment of reserves. Claiborne's brigade commanders all performed brilliantly. The Federals paid a substantial price for Hooker's rash attempt to force the gap. They suffered over 500 killed, wounded, and missing. Claiborne, by contrast, reported 20 killed, 190 wounded, and 11 missing. At almost the same time Grant ordered Hooker to break off the action, Patrick Claiborne prepared to do the same, after having fulfilled his mission to buy time for the rest of the Army of Tennessee to get away safely. For the Confederates, as they marched away from Chattanooga and into northwest Georgia, Claiborne's stand at Ringgold Gap proved to be a small, bright spark in a sea of otherwise unrelieved gloom. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is All Hell Can't Stop Them, The Battles for Chattanooga, Missionary Ridge, and Ringgold. November 24th through the 27th, 1863, by David A. Powell. This is another of David Powell's books that cover the fighting at Chickamauga and uh, for Chattanooga. There are, what, five or six of them, and all are excellent, and each deserve a spot on your Civil War bookshelf. 
Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find information on joining the Strawfoot Brigade and supporting the podcast in that way, just like Jason S., Richard W., Chenzo580, Stephen S., The Virtuoid, Justin W., and Jake D. have all done recently. We also want to thank Anthony I. for his donation. Yep, thanks, one and all. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us again next time when our focus will shift to what was happening at Knoxville. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.